Jesus House in pursuit of God, discovering purpose, maximizing potential, impacting lives. This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London. God bless you. Hallelujah. Father, we want to thank you for your word. The entrance of your word always brings light, illumination, direction. It destroys yokes, lifts burdens. It transforms our, our lives, changes our thinking, reforms our thinking. And we thank you for that and other things, O oh God, that it does. Your word is awesome, Heavenly Father. Anoint us, O oh God, to receive the word. Anoint the speaker to speak under the unction of your spirit, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. Amen. Well, today we are in uh, part two of Don't Be Ensnared at, at Kadesh, and that sits in the larger uh, picture of the journey into God's promises. And we know what happened at Kadesh. I'm going to whiz through that just because we have a few things we want to do today. Um, at Kadesh, as the Bible says in Psalms 106, verses 32 and 33, Moses got into serious trouble. And the trouble he got into was really that he, the plan, the de his destiny, um, in a sense, got abruptly terminated. And it got terminated because he was uh, um, provoked into anger. And in the anger, the Bible calls it an explosive anger. He spoke out of his bitterness, the psalmist says in that scripture. Um, and he, instead of speaking to the rock, uh, he struck the rock in his anger, not once but twice. And God said to him uh, that because he had done that and he hadn't hallowed God's name, then he would not be bringing the assembly into the land which had been given to them. Numbers 20 verse 12. And so we, we wanted to look at that because we wanted to make sure we, le we, we, we took lessons from that. How to make sure we don't experience the same fate, that the enemy doesn't provoke us to the point where by our actions we terminate our destinies or, the, or God's plan for our lives. And we said that there were, looking at the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter and the first verse, that there were really two things that we felt were at work there with Moses, Hebrews 12 verse 1. We said the first thing were the wounds, what, what one translation calls the wounds that pierced his heart. Another translation calls it the weight, and we dealt with that. And we said the second thing was the sin that so easily ensnares us. And, you know, the Bible talks, uses various phrases to describe that sin that so easily ensnares us. Uh, um, and we then said that um, when we talk about sin, that that sin the Bible talks about, the one that so easily ensnares us in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, um, one translation, the Passion Translation says, the one we so easily fall into, um, and I like the Amplified Classic, it says that sin which so readily, deftly, and cleverly clings to and entangles us. Now, all those phrases um, in the context of that scripture help us to understand that it's not talking about someone who is not a believer. In fact, the scriptures were addressed to believers. So it's not talking about 
us being, as we found out last week, uh, in the in in the in the old man, uh, the uh, the the nature that Adam gave us, uh, that nature that is uh, rebellious to God, disobedient to God. That's where we were before Christ saved us. So Christ has saved us, but then as we're running this race, we are qualified to run the race. We are running the race. There is the challenge the Bible puts before us of the sin that so easily ensnares us, we so easily fall into, or that so deftly and cleverly clings to and entangles us. Now that tells us that it's talking about sin that is close to us, and more likely than not, that has been clinging to us for a while. We've carried it for a while. As you well know, Moses' sin that eventually got the better of him was something that he had been dealing with for most of his life, probably, because we see the first uh, showing of that area of weakness when, he's, when he kills an Egyptian who is oppressing a, a, a child of, 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 of Israel. We see another showing, and these are years apart. We see another showing, another indication that there is this sin that is clinging, deftly clings, cleverly clings to him. That there is this, this sin that could so easily en ensnare him. That he's entangled with this sin. We see another expression of it um, when in his anger he smashes the tablets that God wrote with his hand on. We see that further expressed where he... Uh, he grinds uh, the, the calf that they were worshipping uh, to powder and puts it in the water system and makes the whole camp drink it out of his anger. It's obvious that there is something that has not dealt with that is clinging to him, tracking him, deftly and cleverly uh, holding on to him. It's close to him. He's probably, he's probably aware of it. We usually are aware of it. But he does not deal with it and it eventually gets the better of him. Now we want to learn from his example and deal with it. So we know that that sin is not the old nature because we are believers. We are born again. Uh, Moses was already walking with God um, in, in quite a, a, a graphic way. Um, we are believers. Hebrews 12 was addressed to us as believers. It's what happens when a Christian is struggling in a particular area, when they haven't dealt with a particular area. And we understand that if it's not the, the, the old man, then it is the flesh that is the problem. And the Bible helps us understand that. Romans 7 verse 8, But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. It says another translation as we try to understand what is this flesh. Another translation of that same scripture says, It was through God's commandment that sin was awakened in me and built its base of operation within me to stir up every kind of wrong desire. Another translation says, to stimulate all kinds of forbidding, the Amplified Classic, to stimulate all kinds of forbidding desires, lust, covetousness. So we understand that when we talk about the flesh, what we are talking about 
is we are talking about an evil desire, a wrong desire, a forbidding desire. We are talking about what caters to the appetites and impulses of our carnal nature. So yes, we are saved, but there, there can be areas in our lives that haven't been fully brought under the control of God, not fully submitted to God. In those areas, uh, desires that are not right, that are evil, that are wrong, that are forbidding, uh, the appetites and impulses of a carnal nature can rule in those areas even though we are Christians. You see, the flesh is the desire of the inner man and the flesh, that desire of the inner man, has had a lot of experience because before we came to Christ, it had been trained by the old man, by that nature that's modeled after Adam, by that nature that is rebellious to God. And so when we cleave to God, we're united in Christ. Yes, we have become a new creature in a spiritual sense, but then there's the challenge that certain parts have been schooled and educated and taught to be rebellious to God, to, to be disobedient to God. And so whilst large parts might be submitted to God, there might be areas where the flesh, that those desires hold sway, they rule and they reign. And that's what happened to Moses. Now that situation is further compounded by the activities of evil spirits or demons or bodiless persons, if you want to call them that. Now, these agents of Satan, who we know are there, they are operating. They are not seen with the natural eyes, but they are very much there. They are persons, and they are roaming around trying to advance the agenda of their master to steal, kill, and destroy, to stop you and I from getting to where God wants us to get to, becoming who God wants us to be. And they're looking for openings. And when they find an area that is not submitted to God, an area where the carnal side is still strong, an area that is driven by forbidden desires, evil desires, wrong desires, it creates a foothold for them and they can come in and establish themselves in that area, be, making a stronghold there, and they can oppress the child of God. Now, I do not believe that a child of God can be possessed, but I believe that a child of God that hasn't submitted a part of their lives to God, where the flesh is still very strong, can create an opening or, or a foothold for the enemy to come in with, by, by sending one of these, his messenger demons or bodiless persons to take advantage of what is their natural habitat in that particular area and start to oppress, hinder uh, the child of God. Now, a graphic picture of this battle with the flesh is presented by Paul in Romans, the seventh chapter. It is so graphic that it doesn't need any telling. Just reading the scripture drives home the point. This can be the battle that a child of God is faced with. We've dealt with the old man. We're now in a relationship with Christ. But the challenge is that 
parts of the flesh are, in our lives, the flesh is holding sway in parts of our lives. Paul says, as he paints this graphic picture, come with me to Romans the seventh chapter. He says uh, from verse 14, I'll read from verse 14 on. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So what does the law come to do? The law comes and points out to us uh, our sinful nature, the areas that are not submitted to God because the law says you shouldn't do this. But then we find, like Paul says, that there is a challenge. What I want to do, I find it difficult to do. I don't practice it. And what I hate, I hate it. I know I shouldn't do it. I sometimes find myself doing it. Um, he says that's the problem. He then goes on from verse 17 to 20 to say this. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He says that I, I appreciate that it's not me in, and it's not an abdication of responsibility, but it is saying that there is a greater power that is at work in that part. It says it is sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. In that carnal nature, nothing good dwells. So when that flesh holds sway in an area, then nothing good is going to come out of it. Moses never dealt with that flesh with regards to the anger, and eventually nothing good came out of it. He says, for to will is present with me. I want to do it. And now this is the challenge. People want to do it. They will. The will is present. I really want to do it. But he says, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. What is he saying? I simply don't have the power. That's why I say to people, your will cannot do it. There are so many who have been frustrated by trying to use their will to do it and have eventually given up. There are many who have accepted as a way of life what should not be a way of life because it is the flesh that is holding sway in that area. But they have tried their best. They, they have made vows, made promises. They have put things in place, but they find themselves visiting the old haunts in that particular area. They find themselves stumbling and falling in that particular area. He says, I, I, I don't know how to perform what, what, it, what I need to perform. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Says so I just can't explain it. I don't understand it. You know, I, I know what to do. I will to do it. I make a promise to myself. I make a vow to God. I, I decide I'm going to do it. I'm not going to speak like that. I'm not going to be provoked. I'm not going to watch that pornography. I definitely am getting out of that relationship. I'm not going to allow that feeling of bitterness to come. I'm not going to speak those words that I know are unkind. I'm not going to speak like that about someone. I know it's not right. I know. But somehow I find myself doing it, visiting old haunts. I just can't get away from it. He goes on from verse 21 to say, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. I desire to do good. 
But I find that there's just this, there's this, this power, this evil that is present with me. That's why the writer of Hebrews says it's the sin that so easily ensnares us. We so easily fall into, so deftly and cleverly clings to us. It is right there with us. We know it. And you know, the truth is that most of us know it. We know that this is the struggle. This is the area of struggle. We might not say it to people. We might be good at at creating a facade, at, at camouflaging it. But most of us in our heart know this is the struggle. In this area, the flesh is stronger. And you know, when we talk about these sins, we, we can paint the picture of the, what we call the big sins. But isn't it instructive that when Jesus spoke to his disciples and told them that the flesh was, the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak, they shouldn't fall into temptation, the temptation, the sin that they were going to fall into was the sin of prayerlessness, not praying when they should. And that is a sin. So you will find that most of us are dealing with something in one area or the other of our lives. He says, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. And that's what gives us the indication that he's not talking to somebody who wasn't the believer because he says, in my inward man, I delight in the law of God. I, I actually love the law of God. I delight in it. I'm excited about it. I hear a sermon. I get a revelation. I'm excited about it. I make promises to live a certain kind of life, a life that is pleasing to God. I delight in it. I, I'm passionate about it. I, I enjoy it. I want to be that kind of person. I want to live a life that's pleasing to God. It's actually my delight. He says, but I see another law in my members. There's just something else that is happening inside me. It's almost like it's a law. It's, it, it's, it's legal in some sense. He says, warring against the law of my mind. There is a war that is taking place. There's something that is trying to suppress me expressing the de delight that I feel in my inward man, in obedience to God, in a life that is pleasing to God, in a life that, that is exemplary as a follower of Christ. He says there's a war that's going on. Uh, there is a force that is trying to stop me from doing that. And it tries to bring me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, the, in those areas especially that have not been yielded, submitted to God, where the flesh holds sway, the forbidding evil, wrong desire. Then he says, it takes me into captivity. And he ends with this cry that surely must touch the heart of anyone who has been there. If you have, if you have been in this place, Paul describes, if you hate yourself after you've done something, if you feel so terrible after you've done something, you feel guilty that you failed God again, you feel almost condemned to this life of captivity, this cycle of sin that, that doesn't seem to be broken. If you have watched yourself and wondered, is that me? Did I speak like that? Did I explode in anger like that? Did I go back to that relationship like that? Did I, sub did I yield myself to that gentleman? I promised God and promised myself it was over. Was it me who was enjoying that gossip? Did I feel that envy in my heart? Did I express that jealousy in that way? 
Did I know that I was so bitter? I didn't realize I had not forgiven. When you find yourself in that place, you understand Paul's cry in verse 24. What does Paul say? He says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched, sad, miserable, sorrowful, dejected, despondent. You know when you've been there. You know when, you, when you've let the side down, when you've let God down. You know when you have slipped up and you promised yourself you won't slip, slip up. You know the feeling of wretchedness that Paul describes, of a deep sadness that you have dropped the ball again. You know that miserable feeling when you know that you've blown it, that sorrowful feeling when you know that you have sinned against God. You know the dejection and the despondence that comes upon you. And if it ended there, what a tragedy. But then God has made a way. He goes on in verse 25 to tell us the way. He doesn't end in that wretchedness, that sadness, that miserable state, that sorrowful state. He doesn't end with the flesh holding him captive. He declares this, this word of freedom. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. He says, I thank God. Now the question is how practically do, do we deal with this flesh? How do we deal with this flesh? Well, let me tell you a few things, practical things. Number one is to understand that provision has been made. You don't have to stay captive. You don't have to stay in that cycle of sin. You don't have to live with a part of your life being ruled by your flesh. Provision has been made and it was made through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't have to be in condemnation. In the next chapter, um, as he continues this discourse, Paul says, Romans 8, verses 1 to 4, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. I'm not condemned. I'm not condemned by what I've done. I refuse and you refuse to allow Satan to condemn you. That's not who you are. There is no condemnation, but it is because we do something. He says, because we, we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He says, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin of death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, there was no power to do it. We tried with our will, our will failed. We tried with the law by telling us don't do, don't covet, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't gossip, don't, uh, don't speak in an unkind way. Um, you must forgive. The law told us all these many things and then we found out that we just could not do it. Uh, our will couldn't do it, the law couldn't do it and God decided I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to do it with a power that is above every power on earth and I'm going to do that for you out of my love for you. The Bible goes on to say God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, flesh an account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law 
might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now, he did it for us and, and literally gave it to us. And we take it when we embrace him as Lord and Savior. And as a result, the old man is dead. We now deal with the flesh by committing ourselves to a life of walking in the spirit. And that leads me to the second thing, that commitment to a life in the spirit. In that first verse, Romans 8 verse 1, the Amplified Classic puts it this way. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, no adjudging guilty of wrong for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, how, how do we, how do we uh, take advantage of it, what has been done for us, committing ourselves to a life in the Spirit? The Bible says, those who live and walk not after the dictates of the flesh, but act after the dictates of the Spirit. Verse 5 says, for those who are according to the flesh are controlled by its unholy desires, set their minds on and pursue those things which gratify the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit are controlled by the desires of the Spirit, set their minds on and seek those things which gratify the Spirit. Now, what, how can we do this practically? There are three words I don't want you to forget. This is how we we change things. This is how we break the hold of the flesh. This is how we walk in the spirit. Number one is the, world, is the word yield. So we are encouraged to keep yielding to the spirit. Or the word submit, number two, submitting to the spirit. Or number three, the word surrender. That's how we commit to a life in the spirit. By yielding to the spirit, submitting to the spirit, surrendering to the spirit. Now please get this. The natural tendency is to want to fight the sin. And we, will, we want to use our will to deal with it. The spiritual root is to yield to the Spirit, submit to the Spirit, surrender to the Spirit. Now, it doesn't happen a lot of times overnight. It is something you're doing daily, yielding to the Spirit, submitting to the Spirit, surrendering to the Spirit. You're doing it day after day after day, especially in that area where you know the flesh is strong. Now, as you do it, something is happening in a place where your eyes can't see it naturally. What tends to happen if you're committed to the process of yielding, submitting, and surrendering? One day, you suddenly realize that your flesh no longer has any control in that area. Your spirit has now taken control because the process of yielding and submitting and surrendering has tipped the balance and your spirit is now fully in control. He says in verse 19, Romans the 6th chapter, verse 19. For as you yielded your bodily members and faculties as servants to impurity and ever-increasing lawlessness, so now yield your bodily members and faculties once for all as servants to righteousness. That's what we do. We yield it. We submit it daily, going before God, submitting in that area. And one day, you just realize that, hang on a second, 
That, that thing doesn't have that sway in that area. It no longer controls me in that area. And that's when you have broken, broken free. You've given the spirit free reign and the spirit has taken control. That's how we live a life in the spirit. Number three, we have to be willing to pay any price. The challenge is that a lot of people say the right things, but when, when God looks into their, their hearts, they are still not willing to pay the price. You know, a lot of people think that you can stroke the venomous snake that sin is. You can accommodate it, and it's not going to cause havoc in your life. We have to reach a point where we realize that it just, it, we, we, whatever the cost, God, Whatever the prize, God, we have to get to a point that we are ready to do whatever needs to be done. And God sees the heart. We mouth it. We, 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 we say the right things. But then God sees the heart and sees that there isn't this desire in us that, that to, to get away from this thing at all costs. Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 29 to 30. When Jesus paints that picture, that's what Jesus is talking about. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it out. What is this he said? Whatever the price is, pay that price. Whatever the cost, pay, pay, pay that cost because you just can't afford to continue to live with an area of your life where your flesh is holding sway, is in control. Because you understand that if, if you don't pay that price, then you will pay a larger price uh, like Moses did, uh, unfortunately, and had his destiny stopped ab abruptly. Number four, we must reform our thinking. Now, remember what I said at the start. I said the challenge is that this flesh has been to school. It has been trained and it was a good student. It learned everything from the old man. And so whilst the old man is crucified, what the flesh lent, what has become a habit for the flesh, the flesh wants to continue doing it in that particular area. So what do we have to do? Because the flesh has expresses its thoughts in, 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 in those forbidden desires, those uh, wrong desires. Well, we have to now train our minds to think differently. And that's what Paul means in Romans, the 12th chapter and the second verse. He says, don't be conformed to this world, this age. In fact, I like the Passion Translation. Stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you. That's part of the problem. Because, you know, the, the, the old man trained the flesh. Uh, the world helped to train the flesh. The flesh was a good student. It says, don't, 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 be, don't stop imitating them. Be transformed inside by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think. Now, this is the challenge. You gave your life to Christ, but your mind has not given its life to Christ. You have become a new creature in your spirit, but your mind is the old creature. It's like the children of Israel. They left Egypt 
physically with their bodies, but they took the mindset of Egypt on the journey with them, which is why constantly they would look back to Egypt and want to go back to Egypt. When you've been steeped in something for so long, it doesn't disappear overnight. There has to, there has to be an intention to bring a reformation of how you think. And when we are searching for God's will, we want to leave that, that, that translation says it empowers you to discern God's will as you live a beautiful life, satisfying and perfect in his eyes. Who wants to live the beautiful life? Then we've got to go through a process of reforming our thinking, a reformation of our minds. And how do we reform our minds practically? We do it, that transformation takes place by applying the word of God to our thinking. The word of God causes our thinking to change. It presents a new view, a new world view, a new philosophy of life. We throw away the old philosophy. Too many in the church have given their lives and will go to heaven, but are struggling here on earth and can't access that beautiful, satisfying life because their mindset is still the mindset of the world that they came from. And the result is that in certain areas they are doing and acting out and in a way that is reminiscent of the world that they came from. So we have to change that mindset. And we have to, number five, eject any illegal occupants. Now, as I explained to you, we have these, these agents of, of, of our adversary roaming around, and they're looking for an opening into a person's life. When they get an opening, person is born again, spirit-filled, but the person has not submitted a particular area. The flesh is strong there. It's, an, it's, it's like a beacon to them. It's attracting them, saying, you can get a foothold in here. So they come in and get a foothold. And, and, and sometimes we have no choice if we are going to, not sometimes, all the time, if we are going to deal with that area when they have a foothold, they are occupying an area they can't occupy a life, but they can certainly step into an area, then we must eject them from that area. We must understand that they have no rights to be there. Our bodies, as the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.16, our bodies are the temple of God. And so we must eject all these illegal occupants. That's what people call deliverance um, a lot of times, where these illegal occupants are being ejected. And it's interesting that a significant part of Jesus' ministry, in fact, the first encounter we get with his ministry involves ejecting illegal occupants. It's amazing how the church, for whatever reason, has chosen not to understand that as a major part of the ministry of Christ and as a mandate that he gave each one of us. We are empowered. He expects us to eject these illegal occupants. Not in other people's lives, 
not to talk about our own lives. Look at what he says in Mark 16, verses 17 to 18. He says, and these miracle signs will accompany those who believe. They will drive out demons in the power of my name. We are expected to do that. We are mandated from heaven to do that. To drive out all these illegal occupants. To chase them away. And we do that primarily by the word of God, by declaring the word of God, by the spirit of God. But we are empowered to chase out these illegal occupants. They are illegal and they can't stay there because if they stay there, they are oppressing the child of God in that particular area. Number seven, number, sorry, pardon me, number six. We are encouraged to get help. You know, the Bible says in Galatians, the sixth chapter and the second verse, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, so what do we do in this area? We pray for one another. You know, don't, don't let the enemy get you into isolation. Don't let him make you feel that it's something to be ashamed of, that there's an area where the flesh has not been dealt with. That's a lie of Satan. We all have areas that we're dealing with. Try and find people who can pray with you. Sometimes you need help to even eject these illegal occupants. Can you do it yourself in your life? Of course you can. But sometimes these illegal occupants are so entrenched and maybe you have not committed yourself to, this, to the, the, the pursuit of God, the spirit, the study of the word like you should. So sometimes help, you can get help to eject these illegal occupants. You can have people pray for you so that you can deal with that area in which you're struggling. Submit to one another. The Bible encourages us. Make yourself accountable. You see, the enemy thrives in darkness. The moment light comes in, the enemy is losing that battle. He enjoys, you know, slinkering around in the suyas and the dark, messy places. But just shine light. Make yourself accountable. Let, let him know that others have come to help and already he has started to lose the battle. Make sure you get help. And number seven, as I sum it all up, you just simply have to kill that flesh. You have to. You have to kill it. It is alive. That's why it holds sway. You must kill it. Of course, the old man has been crucified. But then we have to crucify the flesh too. Galatians 5 verse 24. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's been done, but we must enforce it. We must crucify the flesh. Romans 8 verse 13. I like the amplified version. It says, if you live according to the dictates of the flesh, you will surely die. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, we can't kill it ourselves. We can't crucify it ourselves. We don't have the power. Our will has failed us. The law has failed us. The rules have failed us, so we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are habitually put into death, making extinct, deadening the evil deeds prompted by the body. You shall really and genuinely live forever. 
And the key there is that word habitually. You see, because the flesh is a tough customer. If you think you're just going to do it in a lackadaisical way, do it uh, today and, uh, and forget it for a month, the flesh is a tough customer. It's been around for a while. It's wily and hard. He, he's, he, he knows how to pretend. And a lot of times he pretends like he's dead. He's an expert in pretending like he's dead, pretending going into, into, into what looks like death but is really a coma. And then when the time is right, he suddenly comes back to life. My sister, that's why you thought you had got rid of it until you saw him and you started to feel things in your body that you couldn't understand. My brother, that's why you thought you had dealt with it, but then you saw, you saw that relation and bitterness came forth from you. You were shocked. The flesh was in a coma. It was hiding. It's an expert at that. So you have to habitually kill it. And habitually for me means literally every day. You must kill it every day, crucify it every day, nail it every day, stab it to death every day. And how do we do that? In Ephesians, the sixth chapter, verses 17 and, and 18, the Bible talks about the Word of God being the sword of the Spirit. And, you know, I, I kind of think it, it wasn't necessarily a long sword because, you see, we are trying to deal with the sin that so deftly and cleverly clings to us. It's so close that I don't need a, a long sword. I, I need something like this, something I can wield and stab it and kill it daily. That's what I need. The Bible says, I, I love this translation, and take the mighty razor-sharp spirit sword of the spoken word of God. So what is that sword? How do I kill this thing every day? It's by the spoken word. I keep declaring the word, declaring the word, declaring the word. And because the spirit is guiding my hand, every blow is fatal. I am killing it. I kill it today and I kill it tomorrow and I kill it the day after and I kill it next week and I keep killing it by the word of God. And what, is that? what, what am I doing? This sword is not a physical sword. It's the spoken word of God. I keep speaking the word and as I speak the word, I'm stabbing that flesh to death. I'm declaring to it that you're not not going to end my destiny. You're not going to stop me from reaching my goal. You're not going to bring shame to me. You're not going to destroy my life. You're not going to stop me from enjoying that beautiful life. You're not going to stop me from enjoying my inheritance. And I'm speaking the word of God. I'm stabbing it and I'm stabbing it. I am ruthless. I don't stop. I don't care for it. I continue doing it until it dies. And I keep stabbing it to make sure it stays dead. That's how we overcome. By the spoken word of God, we declare it, we speak it, we live in the spirit, we're ruthless. It reforms our mind and our thinking, gives us a new world view. And then we can run that race, that marathon race with distinction and get to our goals and our destination. Your flesh won't get the better of you. No, no, no. You're going to stab it to death. Kill it with that spoken word of God. Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you and we bless you. 
We glorify your name. We exalt you. Give us the grace to do what needs to be done so that we can live a life that's pleasing to you. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Asking that you will help us in the areas where we're struggling to sit with your word, to put it on our lips, in our mouths, to declare it with, by faith. And as we do so, we're stabbing that flesh, crucifying the flesh again. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hallelujah. Well, of course, as we said, you can't do it on your own. You have to be in union with Christ. He gives you his spirit. He opens up his word so that it is just not letters, but it is words that they are words that are filled with spirit and life. And with the words on your tongue, with the spirit anointing it, with the revelation he gives you, you can deal with whatever life come, brings you away. But to do that, you've got to be in union with Christ. And so as I end, there might be someone who hasn't settled it. You can't say of a certainty that I am one with Christ. I am in union with him. And how do I become, how do I find myself in that place? That I accept him as my Lord and Savior. Well, if you want to do that, I would be privileged to pray with you. It's simple. Just say this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, today I open up my heart and I receive your son Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I give my life to him. I make a commitment to turn away from anything that is not pleasing to you. I commit myself today to obeying you, yielding myself to you in Jesus' name. I thank you because by this prayer, I believe that I, I am now a child of yours, accepted into your family, born again into your family. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, God bless you. Um, let's uh, look forward to continuing on this uh, journey into God's promises. I hope, I hope this blessed you. Please take it and amplify it. Um, you know, let the Spirit amplify it for you as we press on. Um, I want to say to you that my prayer for you is that you will run that marathon race. You will run it having got, got, you've got rid of the weight, the wounds that pierced you. You've learned how to deal with the sin that so easily ensnares you. It will no longer do so. And you will finish that race with distinction in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. God bless you.